Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to uh, our session on uh, publishing in religious studies journals. Uh, my name is Brent Plate. Uh, I'm the managing editor of Material Religion and uh, work with a few other journals as well. Um, I wanted to just give a little brief introduction to uh, why, why we set this up in the way we did, and then uh, Andrea will uh, introduce uh, each of the uh, panelists here, and uh, we'll each discuss just a few things from our own perspectives for a few minutes each and open it up to a conversation. Uh, the idea would be to have a lot of Q&A time uh, from people. Um, can, I, can I just ask real quickly, are there any other religious studies journal editors in the crowd? Okay, well, good. Um, oh, okay. Um, so we, we had sort of, you know, we'd pitched this as a, uh, you know, place to uh, sort of show some of the transparency, some of the behind the scenes work, especially for uh, junior faculty and graduate students to know, you know, what, what happens in the process of, uh, of publishing, uh, publishing an article. I, you know, sometimes I, when I was just starting off, I thought it was sort of you stick a quarter in the gumball machine and you turn a crank and then out comes the purple gumball. Uh, sometime later, um, and maybe I wanted a red gumball. Um, I wasn't sure what went on behind the scenes uh, for the process. So we're trying to sort of, from a number of different perspectives, try to show some of, uh, some of what happens when you submit an article, where it goes, what happens to it. Um, for some of you, maybe know some of these. But one of the things we wanted to do too in this, in this um, day and age uh, with more online work and uh, issues of open access being very important and also uh, the, the so-called crisis in humanities publishing, uh, changing a lot of things around, um, trying to get a range of people. So we've, we've, uh, we've assembled sort of a panel of us. Some of us are working with sort of um, you know, big for-profits and others are working with university presses and some are doing online open access, um, uh, you know, Kind of work, so there's a variety of uh, variety of publications, um, and and these these things, the economics of all this does matter, right? As to how these things operate, um, and uh, we'll find different ways and and how we're going forward into the future of academic publishing, including uh, religious studies publishing. Uh, is there's there's a lot of questions these days of what's going to happen. Open access is an enormous issue right now. Uh, going on in a number number of places, so we wanted to uh, bring together um, uh, some some journal uh, editors and uh, talk about how we're uh, how we're working here. Um, but uh, we're also sort of slightly beginning to sort of think about collecting editors together and uh, sort of thinking about how we as editors function and uh, how some of the similarities and differences across the ways we run journals. Um, and uh, there's a uh, sort of an increasing need for uh, us at our level to sort of gather together uh, in sort of publisher-free zones, and um, not to say there's anything wrong with the publishers, but um, we, we need sort of spaces as academics to be able to work uh, apart from the business models that are often uh, imposed on us. Um, and, uh, but also to make this sort of, again, a more of a transparent sort of issue, so it's not just sort of a, a question of what happens to my, uh, to my article uh, in the midst of these things. Uh, there's a lot of promises and a lot of, a lot of perils going on right now. So what we did with this is um, we just basically we, we sort of started off. Uh, Andrea and I were talking last year a bit about this as we began to uh, put it together. We sort of came up with a list of questions and we presented those questions to everyone and, and everyone, uh, the other editors will talk about them in their own way. Um, I'm just and, and rather than sort of one of us maybe sitting here and asking each one the question individually. I'm just going to read these questions out, and then they, they will take it however they want. So questions we came up with are just things like, what, how can I find the best fit for my own research? You know, how do I know where I've got this article, I've got this area of study, uh, where does it go? You know, what's the best, what's the best avenue for this? 
Um, and then things like, what can I expect an editor to do? I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions uh, around this. Right? What, what, what does an editor actually do? Um, and then what shouldn't I expect an editor to do? There's a lot of things uh, we might expect. Oh, I think the editor does, you know, I, I'm a managing editor, uh, which means I don't do copy editing. I'm not going to correct your punctuation, right? That's not my job. That's another person's job. So there's a number of, number of editors involved with any publication. So thinking about what, what should you expect uh, any of us to do, what, what shouldn't you expect us to do, uh, questions like, uh, why is it taking so long to hear back from the reviewers and get my, uh, get my uh, article assessed? Um, and then finally, things like, um, uh, this happens very often, I've got to revise and a resubmit, and uh, what do I do now? How do I approach the rev revisions, and uh, how do I tackle that? So these are the, these are the uh, that's kind of the general introduction. Um, uh, Andrea Jan will, uh, will introduce each of the uh, people individually, uh, editors, and they will come up and uh, speak for a few minutes. Thank you, Brian. I, I, I should briefly introduce Andrea is the um, uh, editor-in-chief of, uh, the, the of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion with Oxford University Press for the last two is it about two years now? Two and a half years. Two and a half years now, and uh, she's doing a remarkable job uh, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the jar, and uh, it's a great, great success there. So. Thank you. That's very nice. Um, I want to start by um, actually <clears throat> introducing uh, Brent Plate uh, a little more, and then we'll go on to our panelists. So Brent is an associate professor of religious studies by special appointment at Hamilton College. His recent books include A History of Religion and Five and a Half Objects and Religion and Film, Cinema, and the Recreation of the World. He's co-founder co and has served as the managing editor of Material Religion for 17 years. That's a long tenure. It's a lot of service. He's an associate editor of Brill's Research Perspectives on Religion and the Arts, an associate editor of Reading Religion, and on the editorial boards of the Journal of Film, uh, sorry, the Journal of Religion and Film, Postscripts, and the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. So I personally have uh, benefited from his editorial expertise and greatly appreciate it. Um, and so our first panelist today is Elizabeth Pritchard. Uh, Elizabeth is Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Chair of Religion at, uh, how do you say this, Bowdoin? Bowdoin, I always say Bowdoin, okay, Bowdoin College. She's the, uh, I'll probably get it wrong again, but she's the author of Religion in Public, Locke's Political Theology, and co-editor of Spirit on the Move, Black Women in Pentecostalism in Africa and Diaspora. She's also the co-editor of the Journal of Feminist Studies in Religion. So thank you, Elizabeth, for agreeing to be a panelist, and I'll hand it over to you. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, so the Journal of Feminist Studies in Religion uh, was founded in 1985 by Elizabeth Shusufiarenza and Judith Plasco, and they're both still involved with the journal in various ways. Um, it is the oldest, therefore, and frankly still the only, and it's because it's still the only, it's the premier uh, journal that is dedicated to, both, to interdisciplinary and interreligious um, feminist work, um, and it holds itself accountable to two constituencies, which makes it fairly unusual, I think, also, is that we hold ourselves accountable to the academy, right, and to transforming the production of scholarship in the academy, but we also hold ourselves accountable 
to activist groups and feel that they are part and parcel of the work of the overall transformation of society in the interests of diversity and inclusion. Okay, so we see ourselves as answerable to both of those communities. Um, and so the editors uh, have always been committed to rigorous thinking and analysis that is really directed towards that transformation, right, and to a sense, therefore, that scholarship really can't uh, have, uh, have a conceit to being objective, right, that in some ways, right, scholarship, right, and our efforts both in the world and within the academy are to be directed toward the transformation of society. When the journal was first published, it was published by Scholars Press. It is published twice a year. Uh, it is now published by Indiana University Press. Over the years, um, we have been approached by various publishers who are interested in publishing the journal. Um, I will say that Elizabeth Schussi Fiorenza um, was dedicated to maintaining editorial control, and so oftentimes we would be courted by a publisher, but the publisher wanted to exert more control than they, we were comfortable with, and so it's, all, it's been a process over time of figuring out relationships that work well, and right now it works well with Indiana University Press. Um, because, going back to this point about our, our, our sense of ourselves as accountable both to the academy and to activist movements around the world, We've always uh, emphasized the need to have different entry points within the journal. And so we have um, both an article section where articles are submitted for review. They go out to two anonymous experts in the field. Those two experts don't know um, the author of the, the work. Uh, but in addition to those articles, we have um, poetry that's published. We do a living it out section, which is really kind of like reports from the field, from movements um, for uh, justice. We also have um, special sections that might be um, panels from at AAR or other conferences. We have a round table section, so we'll have uh, a board member. We have about 30 board members and then uh, from North America and then an additional 15 to 20 international board members. So one of them might write a lead piece, about 4,000 words, and then several others will be asked to respond to that piece in 2,000 words with us a round table. We also have short takes, which um, is a group of folks who write about 1,000 words that take a particular topic and talk about how you can um, handle this topic in your classroom. So it's really about pedagogy. That's called short takes. Um, and so we have, we also sometimes have editorials, um, but the aim, right, is to really provide a number of points of entry, right, into the production of scholarship in feminist studies. Um, we've also, therefore, kind of replicated over time um, that kind of need for points of entry and for inclusivity by kind of becoming now a multimedia sort of entity, right? So we started with the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion. We then created... Um, a feminist studies in religion website that then has a blog series. And then we also, with help from the Carter Foundation, was able to get money to start a book series, right? And so what we're able to do there, um, with, or excuse me, what we're able to do with all of those units is kind of encourage folks to start, say, by writing a blog on a topic and, and then having some feedback that goes out to reviewers, getting feedback on that blog, perhaps turning that blog into an article, and then eventually, right, turning that article perhaps into a book, right? So 
in the same way that within the pages of the journal, we have these points of entry um, to all different kinds of folks, we also then are replicating it by having these different units, right? So what we're trying to do is right, create kind of some scaffolding toward um, making sure that scholarship is as inclusive as possible. We also, um, one of the other reasons for doing that then, right, is, is not only um, inclusivity in terms of the um, persons who are invited in to produce that scholarship, but also to have a global reach for the journal. Um, that was why we created an international board, um, and so we are really trying to make sure that we reach folks who are doing work um, in all different spaces across the world. And oftentimes, right, folks who may not have the kind of mentoring or support, right, that um, people here in, the, in North America might actually get. Okay. Um, so I'd like to talk then a little bit about these questions that been, have been put forward. Um, in terms of the finding the best fit for your work, um, you really have to, in some ways, right, do research on the, your research, right, or where to put your research. You actually do need to go out there and acquaint yourselves with journals, right? Um, we have a website, www.fsrinc.org, um, right? You can visit and you can find out the mission of the journal, right, and find out who the people are, find out what we're interested in publishing. That's easy enough to do, right? Um, and so you're going to really have to kind of... A, acquaint yourself with the journals that you want to be to have your work appear in. Um, most of the time when we get work that really isn't suitable, it's work that really doesn't have a feminist, womanist, or moherista framework, theoretical framework. And so we have to, you know, kind of give that author fairly immediate feedback and say, this really isn't suitable for our journal. Um, and we direct them to, here's what we're about. Um, so you definitely want to kind of go out there and read stuff and get a sense of what's out there. I also suggest that you reach out to your colleagues and offer to read their work, too, as a way of improving your own work. What I have found is working as an editor over time, and I've worked as a managing editor and now as a co-editor, is that you can get really good, right, at producing um, first-rate work by just editing others' work and giving feedback on it. So I definitely encourage you to do that. Um, what can you expect an editor to do for you? Um, they can update you on the status of your manuscript, right? But reach out to them. We are really overworked folks, right? And it's hard to continually, you know, remember to reach out to someone who has submitted a manuscript. But if you, you know, reach out to us, we were, we're happy to give you those kinds of updates. Um, on that, what is taking so long is it is extremely hard, right, to line up reviewers that have the relevant expertise. And in my case, precisely because we are trying to get um, more, be more inclusive, get more voices, a global reach, I'm often getting work that's been submitted from, say, Turkey, for instance, right, where that person is talking about um, a movement there, right, that I have to scramble to find who knows that, who's the expert on that, right? Um, and so that's one of the hardest things is finding those folks. When I find them, getting them to commit, right? And then once they commit, getting them to actually do the review on time and, frankly, give me and therefore the author a really good review, a detailed review, a review that is framed in a constructive, positive voice, right? Um, it takes work sometimes to have to rework a review that is maybe, you know, inappropriately negative, say. Um, so all of that takes a tremendous amount of time. Uh, and so when you're waiting for that answer, feel free to reach out, but bear in mind 
and particularly too in the case of my journal where we're really trying to, again, reach people who are underrepresented in the academy, we're sometimes reaching for reviewers who are the, amongst the most overburdened um, women, particularly in the academy. Okay. Um, in terms then of what you can expect a reviewer to do, or excuse me, an editor to do, is once I get those reviews, um, I have to make a decision, right? And I mean, frankly, we want work, right? We need to keep going by having material, but we have certain expectations for what gets published in the journal. And I'll make a decision based on these two reviews. If the two reviews are quite different, I might seek a third reviewer. But then again, I have to worry, oh, this is just going to add more time. So generally, um, I'll make a decision based on what the reviewers say. I might, it might be an accept. It might be an accept with revision. It might be a revise and resubmit. It might be an encouraging revise and resubmit, OK? Or it might be a rejection. Um, generally, though, most of the time we're not going to send something out for review that we feel, right, that will get rejected, and so we always give it an initial review. Um, what I can do as an editor, if I can try and give you a read on what I see in these two reviews and what's most important for us in terms of publishing your work, right? If I feel like the reviews might be fairly straightforward, I may not supply that, okay? But if you get a reviewer's report and you're not sure of what to make of it or what's important, maybe you think one of the items recommended is a tangent, right? Reach out to the editor and say, hey, can you give me some help here? How should I read these reviewers' reports, okay? Um, in terms of what you can expect, another thing that you can think about in terms of what to expect from an editor, I think different journals vary on how much editing they will do with your work. I went to a conference a long time ago at UNH on feminist work and, and um, feminist journals in particular from all different disciplines. And a number of them were saying that some of the name people in the field you know, ended up getting a lot of help in, uh, in editing in order to kind of uh, get their work into a publishable form. And so the kind of the expectation was is that editors will sometimes do quite a bit of work doing that kind of editing. I think that varies, and I think it's probably getting harder to get that kind of work, given, again, that people are, t are significantly overburdened with work in general in the field. Um, I think um, that's probably all I have now, because I want to make sure that we have time to respond to your questions. Um, so thank you. time at the end for Q&A, so that's great. Thank you so much. So our next pana panelist is Johan Striedom, who is editor of the Journal for the Study of Religion, which is published by the Association for the Study of Religion in Southern Africa. His research interests include religious nationalism and violence, critiques of African indigenous religious claims and practices, and critical approaches to material aspects of religion. Preceding his appointment as editor of JSR, he was co-editor of the journal Fronimon. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. A journal that has as its goal the promotion of a dialogue between Western and African philosophies. So thank you very much, Johan. Um, I mean, Johan, please uh, help yourself to the mic. Uh, thank you, Andrea. I would like to thank Brent and Andrea for inviting me. I seem to be the only representative 
uh, as editor of a journal outside of North America from the Global South. And I will try not to repeat too much of what we have heard now. Uh, I will read my uh, short notes here, and you make out the similarities and differences between what we have just heard, and uh, we can follow up on some of these issues later. As you heard, the Journal for the Study of Religion, JSR, is published by the Association for the Study of Religion in Southern Africa, ASRA. It publishes articles that are non-confessional and study religion from a humanistic perspective, similar to what Nasser is trying to do here. We are particularly interested in articles that analyze problems in an interdisciplinary way. As a journal that is located in the global south, many of its articles give voice to African, particularly Southern African perspectives. However, in order not to become an isolated and parochial voice, the journal encourages dialogue, comparison, and critical engagement with theories and case studies from the global north. The association was founded in 1978, a bit more than 40 years ago, and is affiliated with the IAHR, the International Association for the History of Religions. The journal has appeared twice a year from 1980 to 1987 under the title Religion in Southern Africa, and after 1987 as Journal for the Study of Religion, or JSR. Its founding editor was Martin Proseski, followed by Abdul Kader Tayop, David Chidester, Yanni Smith, and the past two years myself. Since the beginning of last year, it has been an open access journal, which is hosted by Silo South Africa, the Scientific Electronic Library Online South Africa, an initiative of ASAF, the Academy of Science of South Africa, in collaboration with the Brazilian silo, which intends to empower academic journals from the global south in order to give greater visibility to academic voices from the global south. In order to achieve this end, the Brazilian agency Cabo Verde is contracted to do the text conversion and tagging of the journal. Currently, we are in the process of establishing a dedicated homepage for the journal at the University of Johannesburg on an open journal system that their library bought for hosting open access journals. Recent uh, thematic issues focused on violence and religion, and next year's first issue will have as its theme economy and religion, for which you are, of course, welcome to submit contributions if that is your field of interest. Recent Feschriften were published in honor of Martin Proseski, the founding editor, and David Chidester, probably the best-known religious studies scholar from South Africa, who retired at the end of last year. I brought, I have with me two copies that I will circulate to give you uh, an uh, impression of what the journal looks like. It has international contributions by Rosalind Hackett, Catherine Lofton, Birgit Meyer, Paul Christopher Johnson, Ed Linenthal, and a number of South African authors. It is, of course, also freely available online. So how does uh, the editorial process, process of JSR work? Very much what we have just heard. The editorial team consists of an editor-in-chief and a managing editor, and we are adding a second managing editor now to help specifically with the search for uh, peer reviewers. So articles are first submitted to the editor-in-chief and managing editor or editors, currently via email and soon via the journal's new webpage. 
The editor then screens the, each submission to determine whether it fits the scope of the journal and follows the journal's style. If unsure whether it fits the scope, the editor consults with the managing editors and gives feedback to authors whether the article will be considered for publication. If not, the reasons are given and alternative avenues for publication are suggested where possible. The next step is to approach peer reviewers, the difficult part. Articles are divided between the editorial team members to solicit two independent reviews from experts on the topic of the article. If the peer reviewers differ radically in their assessment, a third reviewer is approached. The author is finally informed about the outcome, whether the article is accepted or rejected on the basis of the peer reviews. When an article is accepted, changes are usually suggested by peer reviewers. The author is then expected to submit by a specific date the revised article with a brief report on how they have engaged with the peer reviews. The business model. As an open access journal, JSR is now freely available to anyone in the world. That does not, however, mean that the production of the journal is free, which would have implications for when you submit to this journal. In the case of JSR, the editorial team members and peer reviewers do not receive any compensation, nor do we need to pay Silas South Africa and the University of Johannesburg for hosting the journal. Cost for the first is carried by the Department of Education in South Africa, and for the second by the library at the University of Johannesburg. In the case of the library at the University of Johannesburg, the money that is saved because of many journals going online is then instead used to host journals and to use their brand to promote the university. The only cost that JSR needs to cover is for the employment of a copy editor in order to ensure consistency in spelling, referencing format, etc. in each issue. To this end, JSR charges a small amount of article processing fees from authors, currently 400 rand per page, about 27 US dollar per page. In the case of South African authors, these costs can be covered from the incentives that universities receive from, for accredited articles from the Department of Higher Education in South Africa and that universities channel to their academics. In the case of students or academics from universities, particularly from Africa, that cannot afford article processing fees, the editor can waive such fees. Okay, so that, those are my comments. We'll talk about the future of academic publishing and uh, more specifically about points of advice to you. Um, I will uh, circulate those two copies on this side and that side maybe. Um, thanks. Thank you, Johan. All right, so next up, Jimmy Yu, uh, co-editor of the Journal of Chinese Buddhist Studies, an open access journal exclusively focused on the history of Chinese Buddhism. His own research interests include the history of the body in Chinese religions, Buddhist material culture in Chan or Zen Buddhisms within the broader context of 15th to 17th centuries China. So thanks, Jimmy, for being a part of the panel. Thank you, Andrew and Brent, for inviting me. <coughs> so I'm less organized by the, my predecessors. I figure 10 minutes, um, I'll just introduce a little bit about the journal, who we are, our, our scope, 
Chinese Buddhism is a small field within Buddhist studies. Buddhist studies uh, have changed from 19th century focused on philology to uh, philosophy, doctrinal, to history, to material culture, interdisciplinary. I'll look back on this point because this deals with soliciting um, peer review uh, by scholars, <clears throat> depending on what kind of submission that we get. The Journal of Chinese Buddhist Study uh, has been around since 2013, since I came on board. Prior to that, we were known as Zhonghua uh, Buddhist Journal, and that's been around since 1987. In our former um, version, we published in multiple languages. We drew from scholars from Japan, from, uh, Taiwan, uh, Europe, North America, so multiple languages on any field within Buddhist studies. And um, we had a lot of submissions, but the journal lost its focus. So in 2013, we decided to narrowly focus on Chinese Buddhism within Buddhist studies, the promotion of Chinese Buddhism, and to make it open access. So authors would have greater visibility, circulation of their research, readily online for anyone to download. At our website, it's also in uh, uh, main search engines at universities. Um, so JCBS consists of a very small team of uh, people. We have two editors, myself, one of the co-editors. But my role is basically a managing editor. So my job is to, um, to vet or solicit uh, submissions. And I work with, and, and I decide whether something will go out for review. Once something goes out, I solicit two reviewers, and all of our reviewers are uh, working in North America and also sometimes Europe, um, top scholars within our field. And they have, theoretically, one month to review. <laughs> Very rarely do I get <laughs> review back in one month. So I've budgeted my time for three months. So I tell them a date if they choose to accept. You know, we're very grateful. And all of them are basically my colleagues working in different universities. Most of the time in North America, we're a very small field, Buddhist studies. Um, once the review come back, there are many scenarios. And this, I'll just drop a hook for questions later. Scenarios such as two strong positive reviews, or one strong positive review versus, and another review positive, but very short. 
which you know the person didn't spend too much time on it. Or a mixed review. Reviewers try to be polite, but it's really a no-go, but you know, revise and resubmit. So there are a whole, kind, a whole host of scenarios that comes to me, and I have to make a decision. Read the reviews, see who the reviewers are. Sometimes reviewers have agendas, and their own agendas uh, comes through their reviews. For example, um, their work is not cited, and they have published on something like this or some other things. Once we do accept a submission, 99% of the time is because we hold a very high rigorous standard, uh, revise, and submit. The revision can range from uh, brief revisions, um, rarely to some type, some type of restructuring and the need to beef up certain sections and delete other sections. And it's on this part of the author to have to answer all the questions that were raised, but they don't have to address and redress their article. And that's where I come in. Which one of these reviews to pay more attention on, to listen to, and others you can skip. So, um, and, I, and my time is very limited, I'm doing my own research and my own thing. So I try to convey this, and if they don't come to me for questions, then it's up to up to them, and once we get it, my uh, partner, the other co-editor, Dr. Dan Stevenson, he takes over and work with the author. And we also have a uh, in-house uh, copy editor. And once Dan Stevenson is done working with the author, see the reviews and what he has done, <coughs> then it's, everything's okay, send it to the copy editor. Copy editors are very difficult to find in our field. So some of the technical terms and the doctrinal subtleties, Dan Stevenson will have to go over and see the phraseology and, and um, the nuances. So it's not mere just copy editing for grammar and so on. 90% of our... Um, Authors are young scholars, sometimes senior scholars, working in North America. Although we're international, very seldom do we get articles across the pond. That's because in Europe, different than the United States, the Buddhist study is still pretty well established in the philological approach to um, you know, kind of intellectual his, his history and philological approach to the study of Chinese Buddhism, whereas in the United States, we have already moved on to material culture and theoretical, using theoretical apparatuses to, to um, examine certain topics. So um, 
As for, so I'll leave the questions if you have any about the processes. Um, how am I doing time? <laughs> Couple minutes. Um, let's see. I'm taking a look at my notes. Okay. I think I'll just leave it here. I think the most important part is the Q&A. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jimmy. Um, our last panelist is Marie Dallum, Associate Professor of American Religion and Culture at the University of Oklahoma Honors College. She's the author of two monographs. Uh, the first is Daddy Grace, a celebrity pre preacher in his house of prayer. And most recently, Cowboy Christians. Great title. She also co-edited the volume Religion, Food, and Eating in North America and is presently co-editing a volume titled Religion, Attire, and Adornment in North America. She served as co-general editor of the Journal of Nova Religio since 2017. So thank you, Marie. Good afternoon. I tend to be loud, so I'm gonna move this away a little bit. So if you can't hear me, let me know. Um, so I am one of four co-general editors of Nova Religio. I've put propaganda on some of the tables. Um, there's also some in the very back if you want to look at our fancy brochure. Um, the focus of our journal is on alternative and emergent religions. And what that means is that we publish on new religions, also new strains of religion within older established traditions, uh, revivalist movements, diasporic religions, uh, pretty much anything that's minoritized, marginalized, or stigmatized, yay, that's our, that's our wheelhouse. <laughs> um, so in addition to articles and book reviews, we sometimes publish shorter pieces that we can classify in a number of ways, but sometimes they're uh, research notes, field notes essays, perspectives essays, and other, other sorts of things. Our journal began in 1997. Since 2005, we've published four issues a year, actually in hard copy still, so that's fun. We're published by the University of California Press, but the journal is owned by a nonprofit organization, the Association for the Academic Study of New Religions. Since we publish four issues a year, and we have four editors, each one of us is the lead editor on one issue per year. But it's our goal to have every single submission read by at least three and preferably all four of our general editors in addition to one or two outside expert readers. Um, and we actually generally achieve that. But it does mean that authors are getting five to six reports back when they get a response from us, which honestly is good and bad. Uh, that's a lot of feedback and it can be really helpful in getting different views on your piece, but sometimes it means there's conflicting advice or just too much advice, and I, I recognize that. Um, and we typically turn every submission around in 90 days. One other aspect of our journal's personality is that we have a commitment to encouraging and publishing new scholars. So we strive to work with authors through multiple revisions if they're a new or young scholar, but we think their work has potential. So I've got a few quick tips for you, and then I wanted to make just a couple comments about communication and professionalism, and then we'll turn it over to Q&A. So in terms of quick tips, 
how do you get published? Well, first of all, you have to actually submit something. Which, like, it's a radical idea, but this does not mean contacting an editor sort of casually and asking them, would you consider reading this before I submit it to see if you like it? Please don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. Just, like, take the plunge and submit something. Make a list of all the places where you think you can potentially publish, prioritize that list, and then send it to the first one. And if you get a rejection, you've still got a list there, right? So that's tip one. Second tip is rewrite your conference presentation so that it reads like an article instead of a spoken piece. Because spoken pieces and written essays are really different beasts, or at least they should be. Uh, they have different structure and different syntax, and it's much better for you if you submit something that reads like an essay. And then third quick tip is to the extent possible, um, format your article for that journal specifications. Um, there may be things you can't do or don't want to do just at the submission level, um, and that's okay, but you may want to send a note to the editor saying, uh, you know, I, I realize that if my journal or my essay is accepted, I'll need to convert the, the MLA format to Chicago format. You know, you can say something like that, but it's better if we get it in, in as close to uh, what it would look like with us as possible. All right, in terms of communication and professionalism, uh, a little bit of this will reiterate things that have been already said. Um, but know that you can and probably should keep an ongoing dialogue with the editor at the journal. Um, you should, uh, especially if you're working on an R&R, &R, contact that person before you start working on the R&R &R if you feel like you have questions or uncertainties about things that were recommended in the reports. Please don't feel like the process is, or the, the power structure is so top-down that you don't have any role in this. You absolutely do. You need to set limits around your work and be clear about what you will and won't do and why. Um, I also strongly recommend that when you have revised and you are resubmitting, you write a letter to the editor. It could be an email. It could be a separate document, something. You write a letter that explains what you did and why and what you didn't do and why. Uh, you may have very valid intellectual reasons for not following some of the recommendations that were made. And if you don't tell us that, we may perceive you as someone who is ignoring advice, right? And that's, you know, that's not the situation at all, but you don't need that misperception about you. So be clear. Here's what I revised and why. Um, it's perfectly fine to do that. Um, now, something I've observed is that writers who have not been published much are more challenging to work with than people who have published a lot. Um, there are exceptions to this, but inexperienced authors tend to grasp onto every word they've written as though it's quite precious. Um, and you do need to realize that once your piece is accepted for publication, someone is going to edit it, right? Whether that's the general editor or a copy editor or multiple people, like they might actually change a word or condense a footnote or recommend you delete this paragraph. But um, please know that that is normal. That's a part of the process and you have to kind of give into it with the trust that we are trying to make your article shine in the best light possible. If you have serious concerns about something they've changed or are trying to change, you can certainly set boundaries and, and state that you, know, you don't like this change or that change, but it's better to not do that with every single little change, right? Like, be flexible with this process. 
Um, and so that leads me back to an important piece of advice, which is you should avoid making a bad track record for yourself. Um, if you're difficult to work with, if you continuously miss deadlines, if you submit an article that turns out to be rife with errors, if you send an aggressively angry response to a revise and resubmit recommendation, all of these become red flags for us. Um, and if you develop a troublesome reputation, it can not only affect you with the possibility of publishing with that journal in the future, but possibly with other journals as well, if it's, if it's a strong enough reputation that we start talking, right? So, so be mindful of professionalism in this process. Um, on the other hand, if you feel like you've been mistreated by a journal or journal editor in some way, you should absolutely speak up. Um, you can write a clear, even a stern note that expresses your experience, um, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. We do make mistakes. As several people have said, we're really busy. We're humans. Um, sometimes we don't handle things in the best way possible, and we just don't even realize it. So if you've been offended in some way or you think some slight has been... Um, committed, I would, I would recommend you do express that to editors. And I actually had a, an exchange very recently with an author who was feeling disgruntled about how her, her essay had been handled. And I actually really appreciated it because we had a good conversation and I learned some things about our process that I think need adjusting. So um, I recommend you do that. Um, and then last but not least, our journal has a reception at uh, AAR every year. It's tonight. You're welcome to come. It's the Nova Religio reception from 8 to 10, cash bar, free snacks. It's in your program. So please feel welcome to come by. The editors will be there. You can chat with us if you'd like. Thank you. I'm putting on my, uh, my other hat here. Um, and uh, we'll tell you a, a few things. Again, I, I'm Brent Plate. Um, I am managing editor of uh, Material Religion. Um, and I wanted to just add a, a couple things, uh, certainly reiterate many of the things that have been said already, but uh, my experiences, um, you know, similar experiences, but of course uh, different experiences as well. Uh, we started Material Religion in uh, about 2003, uh, first conversations, did our first publications in 2004. Um, there were four of us who worked together. We, you know, so one of the things to sort of note is we all have slightly different editorial structures and what we call ourselves. Uh, my title is managing editor, um, but I in a sense, I sort of, in another journal, I'd be called editor-in-chief or just editor. I'm the, I'm the point person that everything uh, comes through. Um, so there's, you know, there's a little loose language that goes on from journal to journal. It's something to note. But somewhere in, in, in mastheads and in online spaces, you, you should find a, a contact person. There should be one contact person. Um, and, and again, that may be managing editor. It may be an editor. It may be a general editor, an editor-in-chief. Um, but I'm the managing editor, um, but the way we've structured it, I work closely with three other editors, uh, David Morgan at, uh, at Duke University, um, uh, Katja Racco at uh, University of Utrecht, um, she just replaced, just this last year replaced uh, Birgit Meyer, uh, who is also at Utrecht, and then uh, Crispin Payne at, um, I'm retired now, but it was associated with University College London, so we've tried to do, uh, we've got two people in the United States and two people in, in Europe. 
Um, we're sort of, we're at the, actually at this point, we're all cycling off uh, at this point. Um, Crispin will be ending here this year. Uh, Birgit ended last year. David Morgan will end next year, and I will step down sometime in the next couple years as well. So uh, we've been doing this for, for quite some time now. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's been a great, uh, you know, successful in, in, in many ways. We, we began with uh, Berg Publishers. It was, at the time, was a small Oxford-based independent press. They did about six journal titles in total, mostly social science-oriented. And the thing we loved about Berg was that they published all their journals were really nice print. You know, they embossed covers, um, and they they wanted to publish ours, and they wanted to do uh, full color. Uh, so we're one of the one of the few journals that, for for 16 years now, have been publishing in full color. So. Uh, if you're interested, if you have work that you're doing uh, out in the field or in various ways or if art, uh, different aspects are important to you, uh, we, we publish our, our, I should have brought some copies with me, but it's a nice-looking journal. Even though we know everyone reads it online, um, it's a nice-looking journal. Uh, it, it, it feels good. It's got nice paper to it, uh, nice glossy images throughout it. Um, and so that's been really key to us, which is, which is you know, also a problem as we're entering this age in which people are really, when we began this, it was still kind of, you know, wasn't, people weren't, uh, weren't reading so much online. Now it seems pretty clear that at least 90 to 95% of everybody who reads our journal is, is accessing it online. Uh, so we actually pay a lot of money. Duke University has uh, been, uh, been subventing um, some of the funding it takes to, uh, to print this in, in color and have a nice looking journal. Um, and we continue to think it's worth it to, to print it. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, idea we've made. So as the managing editor, everything comes to me, uh, same kind of thing. I, I'm then, I quickly send it out to the other three editors and collectively all four of us work democratically, come up with, you know, first assess it, is this worth sending out? Does it fit our range? Uh, is this uh, better suited for some other journal? Uh, and if we think it's uh, worth sending out, we'll send, uh, you know, get ideas for reviewers, send it around uh, again, and, and same kind of things. It's just the struggle of finding the right reviewers in the right places who can uh, respond appropriately. Uh, three months is, uh, is our average uh, turnaround time. Sometimes, you know, we get lucky and turn everything around within a month. Uh, hardly anything is quicker than a month, though. Um, in fact, I mean, probably once every three years that happens. <laughs> um, it's just uh, pretty rare. And then there are the outliers that, for whatever uh, roll of the dice, you know, we, we cannot get a reviewer. We send invites out, don't get a, you know, so we wait a while for the reviewers to respond back. Sometimes they quickly respond and say, I can't do it right now, you know, I'm busy. Others just simply don't respond. They don't click the little thing that says, I can't. All you have to do is click that, right? <laughs> I cannot do this. That helps us out so much, right? Just say, no, I can't do it, and we can move on to the next uh, person. But we get these ones that get stuck in inboxes, and they don't respond, and so we don't necessarily send another invite out. Um, but that's the, probably one of constantly biggest struggles, is trying to find reviewers who will do a good job, who will get it back in a, uh, a decent uh, amount of time. Uh, material religion is um, a part of what we, we try to do. We organize different kind of uh, subject areas as well. We've, you know, uh, JAR is, of course, doing you know, sort of very broad-based uh, religious studies, all kinds of fields, all kinds of regions, all kinds of methodologies. 
um, uh, feminist studies and religion as, as a, a particular kind of focus. Ours is uh, material religion. So we, our subtitle is The Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief. Uh, we've sort of put together a quirky set of uh, three terms that we, we, we think may be searchable and uh, finding some other ideas. Uh, obviously, it's much more than arts, uh, arts and belief. Um, when we first started publishing, again, as I said, Berg put, did a good job. Um, a few years later, uh, Bloomsbury, uh, they started making money of this, this guy named Harry Potter, um, sort of uh, developed and uh, made Bloomsbury into this sort of overnight publishing success based in London, and they started deciding they wanted to get into the academic market. So they began going around and buying up uh, academic journals. Uh, so we went with Bloomsbury for a few years, and then uh, Bloomsbury decided they didn't want to do this anymore, so uh, Taylor and Francis Routledge uh, uh, took over many of the journals from Bloomsbury. So I, I say that in, in part just to notice there's, uh, there's larger neoliberal uh, capitalist forces at work in all of these publications to, to various degrees, um, massive global uh, organizations, right? Um, uh, some of these, some of these, um, some of these are very small scale that we've got here, but uh, also some of the publishers who publish our journals are huge global uh, corporations, and um, that makes a difference uh, oftentimes with our with our work as well. So I just want to uh, sort of note that I, I, you know, I continue to I, we we continue. They leave us alone, and we do just good scholarly work. Um, but there are those times when things, we do have to have some long conversations. Um, I want to stress a, a, a couple things. We, and, and then it, with material religion, one last thing. We, we publish, uh, like, like some of the others, we publish in sections. We do about four, four articles per issue. Then we have a section we call in conversation, where we have one topic or one issue. And we, we invite maybe three people to uh, give maybe a 1,000 to 2,000 word essay in response to a question and have a conversation about it. Uh, we do some book reviews and we do a thing called Outlook, which is oftentimes a review of exhibitions. We do a lot of work with museums, and uh, so we do museum exhibition reviews. Um, I want to advocate, uh, again, for this uh, peer review process, because we're in an age of, uh, of open access and uh, really incredible amounts of information online, as you're all aware. Uh, we maintain at Material Religion that peer review is absolutely essential for uh, good scholarly practices, and uh, it just simply takes time. And I think this just continually has to be stressed and understood. Uh, I distrust any journal that's going to tell you they're going to publish your piece within three weeks. Uh, never, never go with a journal that's going to give you a quick turnaround time, because the only thing that can mean is they're cheating the peer review process. And to do a solid, honest peer review, it takes at least two months, and usually a few months longer than that. Um, so do not trust a journal that, uh, that wants to get this out quickly. If you're on a tenure clock, think in advance. <laughs> I get questions, I'm sure you all do too. Uh, I'm, I, I've got to submit my tenure file next month. Do you think if I submitted this now, I could get an acceptance and I could put this on my CV? No, you can't. <laughs> uh, it's just not possible. I, we, we certainly try to accommodate as much things as possible, but uh, we cannot give you a response within a month just because you're on the tenure clock. You need to think ahead you know, uh, for these things. In other words, think ahead. If you're on the tenure clock and you know it's next year, you need to be submitting something now so you get a decision uh, by that time. If you want it to be an acceptance, uh, as many of my, my colleagues said, um, most likely you're going to get a revise and resubmit. Uh, 80, I think around 80% of everything that's submitted to us is revise and resubmit. 10% we probably just flat out reject because it's just not for us. Uh, 
I think maybe five to 10% of articles we get and we'll give a conditional accept to that are pretty, pretty close to being done. A very rare thing that happens, but almost always it's revise and resubmit. Um, usually it takes um, at least one revision and resubmit, and I'll, I'll reiterate everything Marie said about submitting, uh, submitting quality work you know, in, the, in the first place, um, maintain elements of uh, professionalism, respond to all the reviewers' comments in one way or another. Maybe it's just like, I think this reviewer did not understand what I was saying here, or they want, the reviewer too seems to want a different article than what I'm proposing here, and then articulate why what you're doing is different than what reviewer two uh, suggested along the way. So plan ahead, right? You're gonna get, uh, chances are, plan, expect to get a revise and resubmit, let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, and that process will, will take some time. Uh, for us at this point, we're, we're, we've become a very uh, popular journal, we've got a very critical acceptance rate, we don't, we, we accept less than 25% of everything that's submitted to us, and out of those, most of those have been uh, revised and, and resubmitted. Uh, it's about, from the point of initial submission to final thing in print with all the stages, it's, we're pushing on two years uh, for this process. Um, that's more than we'd like it to be. We're trying to figure out ways we keep every year we increase the page account, even though we're, we're, we're critical acceptance rate. Uh, we're raising the page count every year, and we're still, we've got backlog. I'm, I'm filling in 2021 articles uh, at this point. I just sent notes to, uh, to authors that their pieces were accepted, but they won't actually get printed till 2021. Uh, they will have some work to do between now and then, but uh, it, it just takes some, uh, takes some time for this. Um, so a number of, uh, number of uh, I just want to raise a couple issues as uh, I turn it over uh, then again to Andrea. Um, some of the issues that are, uh, we're working with right now, as I mentioned, there's sort of changes in publishers, there's uh, you know, takeovers uh, in various kinds of ways. Um, there is an issue I think most of us are trying to reach out to a, to a much broader global audience. Uh, for Material Religion, about I think 40% of our articles are people from the U.S. and um, good chunk, maybe a third is then from uh, Europe and then maybe 15, 20% is, is uh, rest of the world. Um, but we're working to, you know, as everyone is, trying to work uh, with other groups. Of course, one of the things this means, obviously, is um, that we're working with uh, authors who's, for whom English is not their primary language and we simply cannot publish anything that's not English. There's a whole number, another structure that would have to take place for that. So working, but we've, we've, you know, for many of us, we've dedicated ourselves to working with authors who, for whom English is not their primary language. I usually do about, I uh, find I personally uh, copy, edit very closely, I, uh, about one or two people uh, per year. I just help them out, their, their English is not, because uh, otherwise they have to pay for it, right? All these companies will give you places here, submit it here, and you have, and they have to pay for it uh, to get it into English, and that's, um, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. So I think it's one of the increasing issues for us uh, as journal editors is how to have a global reach but also be able to make it accessible for people uh, for whom English is not our primary language. Um, and then issues of copy editing. We've recently gone to, uh, got an announcement that there's an initial sort of artificial intelligence uh, we'll be reading through uh, pieces. And this, we will continue to see this uh, for all journals in the future. Run it through AI software that will quickly note the 
incorrect referencing, missing commas, et cetera, et cetera, and this will, will continue to be the, the case. Um, there's a little bit of scariness to that. It's not the final, right? It's, it's just the first pass. Uh, there's always humans that are looking at it, um, but that is uh, certainly is one of the issues uh, for that. Um, and, then, and then finally, I just, just to reiterate again uh, Marie's points, um, you know, establish contact. Be in communication with, the, uh, with your connecting uh, point person uh, in the editorial board uh, to work on these things, because um, that just that helps a lot to, to communicate with people. Um, let me uh, then final uh, presenter Andrea uh, is going to speak uh, for a few minutes um, about uh, your experience. Yep. Which are? Okay, <laughs> Andrea. Uh, just to introduce her more formally, uh, Andrea Andrea Jan is um, the. Uh, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Uh, she's the editor of uh, the journal for, she's the, she's the key person at, uh, at, at JAR, uh, but, but her title is editor here. Um, books she's published include the 2014 uh, Selling Yoga from Counterculture to Pop Culture, and then in, in, uh, in production now is Peace, Love, and Yoga, The Politics of Global Spirituality, forthcoming with uh, OUP. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, I also want to just let everybody know that there's a couple other uh, sessions on the program on uh, how to get published. Um, following this session, we have a session on women in publishing and some of the specific challenges women face in publishing. And then tomorrow we have a session on the, the how to get published session that is an, an annual session here at the AAR that the AAR coordinates with OUP, and we have, uh, I sit on that panel as the journal, as the JAR editor, and then we also have uh, the edit uh, an editor from OUP, Cynthia Reed, as well as the AAR book series editors. Um, so just, just wanted to plug those sessions too for those of you who wanna keep learning more about the publishing process, both in with, with regard to journal publishing and books. So um, as Britt mentioned, I'm the editor of the JAR, and the JAR has been published since 1933, and it was formerly known as the Journal of the Bible and Religion, and it's evolved a lot and changed as the American Academy of Religion and the discipline itself developed its own identity, and uh, eventually the AAR split from SBL. Um, so now we are the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and we publish a lot of different uh, types of scholarship, I'm just going to give you a sense of what uh, volume 87, that is the 2019 volume, looked like. Um, we're covering such a wide range of methods, theories, traditions, and cultures. Um, in that particular volume, we're covering Burmese Buddhism and Indian Buddhist monasticism, ancient Christianity and contemporary evangelicals, South Indian Hindu practices, Islamic ethics and law, Africana religions in the United States and Ghana, transhumanism, capitalism, the climate crisis, secularism and secularity, critical race theories, affect theories, and cognitive science of religion. That's just a sampling of what is present in one volume of the JAR. Uh, we publish 323 pages per issue four times a year. Uh, so it's a pretty hefty text. Uh, and so we're, um, 
we're, 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 our goal is to really publish um, volumes that represent or capture the, the real breadth of our discipline, but also and especially some of the most provocative and pressing concerns in the discipline. So we try to stay ahead on the trends. Um, and um, since I became editor in 2017, um, I've been really pushing the JAR to publish more on disciplinary reflexivity. So that is scholarship on the discipline. Uh, and so we have a discussing the discipline section, and I've been slowly expanding that section. So the, the volume 20, uh, sorry, volume 87, for example, uh, featured seven articles uh, under discussing the discipline, but also three full roundtables. We also publish roundtables in the jar um, that, are, that include several articles, all in this discussing the discipline section. Uh, we also are looking for articles, though, that um, are, are, are specialized and uh, represent the best scholarship in particular subdisciplines, but the best scholarship that offers some kind of intervention that might be of interest to scholars of religion beyond that subdiscipline. Okay, so uh, for example, in um, one of the articles published in the 2019 volume was Nicholas Witkowski's Living with the Dead as a Way of Life, a Materialist Historiographical Approach to, uh, to Cemetery Asceticism in Indian Buddhist Monasticisms. It's a mouthful. So as you can see, that's highly specialized. Yet, what Witkowski does in this article is he intervenes in this long-standing scholarly conception that ascetic practice was incompatible with the institutional imperatives of the Indian Buddhist monastery by applying what he calls a materialist historiographical approach, which he locates within a genealogy of scholarship that reads literary texts for an anthropology of everyday life. So he makes this theoretical methodological intervention that would be of interest potentially to scholars working with texts from a, a multitude of, uh, of traditions. Um, and so that kind of specialized scholarship offering these kinds of broad-reaching interventions are of interest to the JAR, in addition to these discussing the discipline kinds of uh, scholarship. Um, okay, so in terms of, uh, that kind of gives you the sense, a sense of, like, of the content of the JAR and what we're looking for, but in terms of process, uh, we receive almost 200 submissions, or actually including roundtable submissions, over 200 submissions a year. And uh, we go through a process whereby every submission I receive directly as the editor um, my editorial assistants, who are PhD students at Indiana University, and Jacob Boss is here, he's one of our editorial assistants, uh, will uh, go through a checklist to make sure that these articles conform to our basic requirements. These are scholarly articles, for example. They are um, articles that um, meet the basic formatting requirements of the journal, um, including the length requirement, which is 8,000 to 12,000 words. Um, there's no blinding issues. We have a strict double-blind review process. So the authors must be blinded, and then the reviewers stay blinded, so nobody knows who each other are. And reviewers are asked to turn down the invitation to review if they know who the author of the submission is. Um, so we maintain this, this policy pretty strictly. Uh, and we then uh, decide what goes out. Um, and this is based on whether or not it's suitable to the JAR. Is it speaking to our broad audience, right? Is it offering some kind of intervention that's of interest beyond a very small subgroup of scholars? Um, does it have some breadth and reach? Um, 
and is it, of course, of a high quality scholarship. We reject um, most submissions. We get, we're, our acceptance rate now is under 20 percent. Um, so it's pretty competitive for a religious studies journal. But the good news is that uh, the JAR gets a decision to authors on an average of 55 days, or in an average of 55 days. So the JAR is, uh, has a reputation for taking a really long time um, back and not too long ago. Uh, this is a true story. I was uh, a tenure track uh, professor and I was in the delivery room with my first child, literally, in labor. And I emailed the JAR editor at the time because I had not gotten a decision on my article, which I had submitted a year earlier. And I was about to become a mother, and I was like, oh my god, I need to know if, I got pub if I'm getting published. Um, and that's no longer the case for authors. Um, on average, 55 days, but we are, sometimes it's even shorter than that, sometimes longer because sometimes reviewers really let things fall through the cracks and I have to really hassle them. But we do our best um, in all cases. And uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I think, let's see, uh, we, okay, so then, what, you know, all the, we follow the, the a similar procedure as that already outlined. You know, once we've decided something, we'll go out to, for review. We identify um, two to three reviewers in our case. Uh, and uh, then, uh, make a decision based on those review reviewer reports, um, typically either accept, reject, or major revisions or minor revisions. Um, and then we work with the author um, to, if, if they got a, a request for revisions, um, we almost never accept, I mean, I, actually we never, I don't think ever <laughs> accept something without revisions. But uh, we you know, work with the author, author if they adequately make those major or minor revisions um, to, to see the publication with copy editing and um, eventually proofing. It's a process, but we don't have a big backlog either at the JAR. Uh, so it's usually within a year of an article getting accepted that it appears in print. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Okay, so I think I'll, I'll stop there because I want to save a lot of time for Q&A, but thanks to everybody for coming, and um, thank you to all of our panelists. This has been really informative. questions for just the panel in general or for a particular editor. We can just open it up. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, our um, roundtables also undergo peer review, although sometimes 
uh, it's a different process because I will oftentimes ask my associate editors to do the peer review for those uh, for roundtables. Um, that's when they are in the discussing discipline section, but not all of them are. And, and yeah, sometimes I go externally. Sometimes I'll go to the larger editorial board. I, I tend to keep roundtables in-house, though, uh, with the editorial board. But that's still, uh, including associate editors, that's about 60 or 65 people. So um, we still will uh, keep the identities of the reviewers blinded, even if it's, you know, even if authors know this about the jar that, or the jar, you know, that the current editor that she tends to keep roundtables in-house. Um, they could do their best to guess who it might be, um, but we keep it technically blinded. And of course, this is a problem. You know, I get reviewers all the time telling me, oh, I heard this paper at a conference, so I know who the author is, so I can't uh, agree to review it. But most of the time, I find reviewers who do not know who the author is, or they might suspect, uh, be able to narrow it down to, you know, four or five people, but they don't, they, they, they like, you assume that they're going to respect the process and not go digging. Uh, but of course, that's, you know, trusting the reviewer to um, maintain the integrity of the process, and it's not a perfect system. Yeah. So I don't have a solution. I, you know, any other questions?
Yes, right here in the green shirt. I'll just say that the, the JAR doesn't publish much um, constructive work from an insider perspective or constructive theology in, anymore. It has under certain editors, but currently we're not. Although we, ha we do publish um, some pieces in theology that are engaged with religious studies literature and speak to both a theological and a religious studies audience, but they, they do that explicitly in some way. Um, and so we do publish some. We had a, a piece this year in Catholic theology, um, last year in disability studies and theology. Um, and so there's some, uh, some of that constructive work, that, but it's got to, again, like explicitly address how this work is also relevant to the discipline of religious studies. Um, just simply because the JAR now, uh, there's, there's so many specialized journals that the JAR is kind of narrowing its focus a bit um, since there's now so many spaces to publish works in, that are in constructive theology. Question in the back.
I don't think we have any book review editors up here today. We, um, we have a book review editor at the JAR. Um, how many of you all publish book reviews? So most of our journals publish book reviews. Um, our book review editor, Kevin Shilbrock, sends out guidelines to authors. Uh, beyond that, though, I, there's not a lot of guidance except for if you asked Kevin, uh, you know, what, could you send me like a model book review? Kevin could send uh, a potential reviewer some, some, some samples, but you're suggesting that you're, you're asking for something more concrete than that. Beyond looking at really good book reviews from a particular journal and asking the book reviewer for guidelines, which mo most book reviewers will have like a one-page set of guidelines. Um, and of course, different journals want book reviews to look differently, so they're gonna have different guidelines. I'm not sure if there is any, are any other sources, not that I know of. Yeah, so Kevin will make it clear to our reviewer, any, any given reviewer, uh, in the JAR we ask not just that you summarize the book and identify its main arguments, but that you also offer some kind of deep analysis of the book. You know, I, 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 right. um, and so he'll have these conversations with each reviewer, um, but that said, thank you so much, beyond um, you know, a set of just basic guidelines for the JAR, there aren't other resources. Thank you. Uh -huh. Jacob. The book reviews typically reflect the character of the jar as opposed to the style where they speak to the larger audience. Yeah. The book reviewers connect the themes in the book review to how might this book be used by other authors or how might it appeal to other authors outside of the book Right. So I think that's important, right, because the, the guidelines for book reviews or what an editor really wants is going to be specific to the nature of the journal. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Yes, over here. Oh, sorry. If they publish it where? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that those kind of things can be, you know, problems with academia in here, but, um, you know, those are some of the areas where that can, I think one of the better things about it is make it open to 
There's a question in the back there, yeah. Yeah, and in the JARS case, we don't do special issues, but we do roundtables. And likewise, uh, submission of a roundtable, we have a certain process, so uh, somebody might contact me and say, oh, I, a lot of times this is how roundtables start. There was a session at the AAR and that I organized, and the papers are really great, and so I asked them to help curate, um, and they will uh, submit a proposal first uh, with an abstract for each paper, and then um, I bring that to my associate editors, and the associate editors serve as the reviewers. And they decide whether to consider it, which means that then we invite uh, the authors to submit full papers, which then go out to reviewers. And again, I oftentimes keep these in-house, but they go out for, to reviewers. And, um, and then we go through the, the whole revise and resubmit process until the roundtable is ready to be published. Um, but alongside other articles in the jar, so not as a special issue. Right, so a roundtable paper, it depends on the roundtable. Uh, we set different parameters for every roundtable. Uh, so they can range, the, each individual, individual paper could range in length from 3,000 to 8,000 words, um, depending on how many pages we've decided. So I, I basically make a decision, how many total pages do I want to give this roundtable? And then we divvy it up between the authors. And so to give you an example, this year in 2019, we published 
two roundtables commemorating uh, scholars of religion who recently died, Jay-Z Smith and Saba Mahmood. And we just, I decided to give Saba Mahmood about a lot, a lot more pages than Jay-Z Smith. And my associate editor said, some of my associate editors said, well, wait, that's not fair. If we're going to commemorate somebody who recently died, we should uh, give them equal number of pages. And I said, no, because uh, there's already a lot of pages devoted to Jay-Z Smith. There have been several um, studies, whole volumes devoted to Jay-Z Smith, but we're just starting to di digest Saba Mahmood. So I made the case that we should give her more pages. And ultimately, this is an arbitrary decision that's up to the editor. And um, other journals will be more systematic about it, but I take roundtables on a case-by-case -case basis. Religious studies. It's an interesting kind of, you know, my experience certainly uh, working on uh, working with journals for, for the last 20 years has been, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rewarding experience in certain ways. It's a, it's a difficult thing in other ways. It's, it's, it's difficult for um, things like tenure because oftentimes tenure committees want you to be doing, you know, your service should be sort of internal to the college or the university. And um, I think for, for some people, I don't get any course release for the work that I do, um, even though it's one full day a week doing doing this work. Um, others certainly can, can find uh, course releases, um, but it's a, but it's a it's a kind of I don't know it, it's a great way to be in the field too. I mean, uh, for for the field of material religion, for instance, uh, you know, when we started it, kind of this phrase wasn't really used. I mean, you didn't you don't see the phrase material religion used pre two thousand four in the academy very much, and, and now it's become more of a standard kind of thing. So it's it's, it's been uh, encouraging for me to be part of that kind of movement, you know, along the way. Um, but yeah, you know, I could easily say it's just a thankless job. <laughs> At times it feels like that, but other times it's, it's really a rewarding one as well. But, it, but, it's, a, but it's a really different thing. I mean, you know, we, we certainly didn't mean to end up as editors, but uh, it has its own kind of merits to it. They can tolerate human beings. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have to have some people skills <laughs> yeah, no, <you> do, <laughs> to be an editor. Um, I, I, think, I think email is, um, you know, Andrea was able to get, uh, she mentioned, get the uh, you know, turnaround rate to 55 days recently, which is a really respectable thing. And she had to work at that. And Andrea is really good at sending emails. It's, you know, a huge part of this job is email. You just follow up with emails. You 
you're following up with reviewers, you're following up with authors, you're following up with other editors, and just constantly this mass, I mean, at any one time, I'm in communication with 20 to 30 different authors, uh, you know, or, or 20 to 30 different people, right? Maybe a couple editors, maybe a few book review authors, maybe one of my book review editors, maybe uh, peer reviewers for these things. I mean, any, any one given time, there's gonna be 20 or 30 email exchanges circulating in, through, my, through my inbox. Brent puts it so nicely, but I call this hassling. <laughs> you gotta be really good at hassling people. Yeah, definitely, uh, again, just back to initial points, do research on where you're submitting uh, pieces. Ask your colleagues, you know, if you're, again, if you're on the tenure track or you're trying to find a job, uh, ask your colleagues, is this, you know, is this a good journal to submit to? Just straight out, ask them if this is, will this carry any weight for my tenure file? And, and uh, a lot of these journals just simply won't because um, they're, they're predatory journals. So that's the goal of it. They're, they're either in it to just sort of generate more content or uh, oftentimes even to make money, right? Where yeah. you, you have to pay to pay to publish your pieces. And um, open access, maybe, I don't know if we have time, but uh, open access is an important issue to, to be talking about. All of us are facing that. Um, Europe right now is going through major uh, revisions in how uh, scholars are publishing and they're making it mandatory for uh, scholars basically to publish open access um, if, um, if, you know, if they're worth if you're, if you're in a Dutch university, for instance, right now, you have to publish in an open access journal, and um, uh, other Germany and the UK and others are following uh, soon on that. And that, that's created huge rifts between you know, the, the, the companies that are publishing our work, and obviously it takes money to publish. I mean, you can't just do this for free, so somehow the money has to come from somewhere. 
Um, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of good, Johann's journal is a fantastic example of something that can be online and open access and be critical and peer reviewed. And this is, this is excellent kind of work, but there's a whole lot of just fly by night organizations that are actually making a lot of money um, off, uh, off people who will submit uh, a lot of money for, uh, for author's fees just to get it uh, open access. And they're with the promise also of turning it around within a couple weeks. Um, they're, they're, their reputations would be, um, they're, they're popular because of the timeline, uh, but, and because they're open access, but uh, they will not look good on a tenure, um, uh, as a tenure, tenure, for a tenure file. take you longer to write the book, but from the point of submission to the point of publication, that's going to be very similar. Any other questions? Comments? Concerns? Yes. How do you do that uh, from an editorial standpoint? So you have to have a fluent uh, speaker of Spanish who's editing through everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. we're just trying to assemble a team of folks who have expertise in the areas, but also be able to do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we're starting small, um, but it's, we're, we're committed to continue to scale. Yeah. And, uh, how, sorry, can I follow up? Sure. This is, this is an uh, <coughs> important issue. Um, page count. Then, if you're publishing, are you publishing bilingual? You're publishing just in, just like the round thing is just in Spanish. No, it's in both, both it's in, in both. English. So that increases page count. Yeah. Um, which, which you know, is is, is you know a, a problem, you know, an issue for us with with print journals. We, you know, we've only got so many pages per year, so we're we have to commit. So it's you know I think it's a, it's an important issue, but it's also right something else has to give for this to happen. It's not just oh you should just publish. Yeah, and it's costly. And it's costly. Cost somebody, some somebody somewhere has to pay. Um, it's just a matter of who's going to who's going to pay for it. Um, it's important. Bringing some bringing on other editors, right? French speaking, Spanish speaking, Swahili speaking editors, because that takes you know uh, it takes time, it takes uh, money to, uh, to do this. Mm -hmm. There's also Stars who don't sometimes look at 
I mean, what we're finding too with material religion is, um, you know, we get a, we actually get a lot of submissions from Iranian scholars, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, you know, some sort of search, they they found us, and uh, we're material religion. We deal with art in various ways, and so what we get is uh, very, very often this is the case, um, an, an architectural piece on architecture of a mosque architecture in Iran, and what we get are these minute. Uh, measurements of archways and doorways and it's just this systematic um, here's the dimensions of this space and this is material and it's a sacred space so this is material religion um, and we get a lot of those um, it, it's really interesting so part you know partly you know we just basically don't publish that kind of work but um, I begin to sort of raise this more of an issue is like why don't we publish this kind of work, and what, what do we mean by material religion, and, and I'm working on a big handbook of material religion now, um, editing with a couple other people, and um, we're sort of trying to raise this issue again, and like, because it, it, you know, these fields are so dominated by this Western orientation, like here's the proper way to do research, right? Gotta have your theorists up front, you gotta have this historiography, you know, it's just a systematic formula, right, that we're all sort of taught in academia, and not everyone learns that way. And um, material religion might have other genealogies to it. And we're starting to sort of figure out what that might look like. What might a, a Japanese, we've actually got someone writing a piece on sort of a Japanese uh, genealogy of material religion. What would that look like if we went back to Dogen or Kukai and, and thought about their responses to uh, material religion in ways that aren't structured by this sort of uh, French structuralist or structuralist you know, uh, background? Um, I mean, I, that's not I think <clears throat> that just brings up another issue we haven't talked about, and that is that I think the shape a journal takes depends largely on the editor or the editors at that time. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing to consider, too, is you know, what is the vision of the current editorial team? And so when you're asking yourself whether or not your work is a good fit for a particular journal, don't just think about the history of that journal. Look at current issues, recent issues uh, from the last calendar year um, and see what kind of material they're publishing because that'll tell you a lot more about the current editorial team um, which is I think ultimately uh, of ultimate significance in determining the nature of the journal on any given day.
There's, there's metrics too, and there's just some issue of metrics, right? I mean, there are so much journals are journal publishing is dominated by the sciences and then the social sciences, and mm -hmm. the humanities are generally, um, you know, just the nature of our work. Uh, it's not cited as often. Uh, it's a totally different structure. Right? They don't make as much money. Um, so the, uh, there, there's a lot of things happening in journal publishing overall and academic journal publishing that's being pushed by the sciences that is very different in a social science and then in a humanities sort of vein. And um, some, of the, some of the metrics that you see um, just simply don't work in evaluating humanities um, journals. Right? The metrics are very often created by either social scientists or scientific uh, kind of uh, uh, means. And so the, the metrics don't, don't skew in the same way as uh, the humanities. So um, you know, there's all kinds of ways, all kinds of indices and things that are out there. But, works differently. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think part, partly what I'm saying is don't, don't necessarily trust all the metrics. <laughs> uh, they, they, don't act, they don't give accurate, um, just because a number is 20 rather than 15 does not necessarily reflect um, or be a common wisdom about the, um, how good one journal is over the other. Uh, tenure review, again, tenure review boards uh, don't necessarily see things the same way as the metrics. So again, I, I, important to have word of mouth, talk to people you trust, talk to, talk to advisors, mentors, colleagues, uh, ask them what, what's important, what journal's important. Um, don't, don't go by what you might find on Google as to what the most highest ranked journal in religious studies is. Any last? Remarks or comments? Otherwise, we're wrapping up just a few minutes early, but we're, all, we're almost there, so it's a pretty good time. Yeah. Too is multiple submissions. Uh, I, don't, I don't think any of us would allow multiple submissions. 
means. If you want to publish what material religion means, it needs to exclusively be with us at a time. You cannot have it also at JAR or the Feminist Studies in the Universities. Uh, almost any English journal is going to have that. So don't do multiple submissions. Because we do talk to each other in various ways. And uh, once we find out, uh, as, as I have at, at times, that some of these feminists, that's it. They're not going to publish with us again. Is there another question in here? No. Oh, one in the back or here? Yeah, I was just talking about this in our editorial board meeting yesterday. I, I try to do this to the best of my ability. I, I can't do it with every submission that I reject, but certainly the submissions I reject that I think are really good, they're just not a good fit for my journal. I try to take a few minutes and think about some alternative journals for that author. And if I don't know, I might ask a member of my editorial board who is more specialized in that area, could you recommend a couple of uh, uh, alternative journals for this author? Because I think that's really important that the author know that it's not getting rejected because it's a terrible piece, but because it's just about fit. Um, so I do try to do that, and, uh, but it's, you know, it, it, we, we spend so much time on this work as it is, so it's hard to do it all the time. Yeah, one, and just one tweak on that, uh, in your question, um, I won't talk to another editor and say, hey, we've got this piece. I, I would just simply write back to the author and say, this would fit over here, and then it's, it's their responsibility um, to do that. I'm not going to talk to the other editor in that kind of way. I mean, we may have a conversation about it, but I'm not going to say, oh, hey, you should, you know, you should look at this. Um, mm -hmm. it's, that's the author's responsibility. All right. Well, thank you so much to all of our panelists. We really appreciate it. Thank you to the audience for your excellent questions.